Welcome to Bodies in the Post, where I speak to art makers, product creators, scientists and revolution makers who help us rethink what it is to be human in these post-human times. Here, we get to know the humans behind the creations and their inner worlds that form the basis of what drives them. I'm your host, Lydia Kay, a researcher in this field. Today's episode is with artist, art director and founder of Anticlone Gallery, Sade English. After studying Fashion Foundation at the London College of Fashion, where she created designs that aligned with what she referred to as anticlone, Sade left the course due to feeling restricted by the regimented way fashion is taught. She moved into painting on canvas during the pandemic, following the death of both her parents. We talk about how she managed to channel her grief into painting during this time. This new medium proved very fruitful as Sade sold a painting to the Mandarin Hotel in London after her first exhibition. Following this success, she set up Anticlone Gallery as a place that can support and sell the artworks of other non-traditional artists who have a unique form of expression that doesn't fit the norms of the art world. Sade represents a broader movement happening within the arts, and yet Anticlone is the only gallery of its kind in London. Here we talk about Sade's artistic background, feeling suffocated at university, being a mixed-race woman in the art world, her ambition to create Anticlone by carving out new ways to create and platform art that challenge the status quo. We also talk about her plans to get back into fashion design. I hope you enjoy listening. Welcome. It's so cool to have you here. We already started talking loads before we hit record and I kept thinking, oh my God, (laughs) save it, save it. So please bring up, we'll bring up those topics again. But first of all, Sade, you are an artist yourself, which we'll get on to, but you are also founder and artistic director of Anticlone Gallery, Mm -hmm. which is an independent gallery and platform designed to be, I would say, like an alternative to the usual quote unquote white cube gallery spaces. Mm -hmm. And on your Anticlone website, you outline that the anti-clone definition is to not conform to suit society and I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about anti-clone gallery and like how you set it up and how you came about to realize that there was a gap that you wanted to fill in the art world. I think the the true foundations of the term anti-clone itself it wasn't originally a gallery it was a concept that I created when I was at uni so I was studying fashion design pattern cutting and I kept saying that at everyone, LCF at LCF yeah London um, College of Fashion that is yeah for context the dreadful uni that it was <laughs> I'm joking <laughs> elements of it were good but I found it a little bit tedious and stuck in a clone like way basically so I, I felt that everything just seemed very repetitive and we're constantly taught about the same way of pattern cutting and design and arts and it was all very programmed I didn't feel like I was free at all and almost as if everybody was being taught almost with a clone like mindset so I created anti-clone as just you know self-explanatory in itself but then I recognized that that was basically everything that I I represented in terms of myself as a person I was always very independent and determined to do what I felt was right and then with that I put that in my clothing and then I use that to be the concept for my brand itself which is Sade English Limited but that Sade English Limited is your clothes that's a brand pardon that's not your clothing brand that's like that's just the brand itself so that's right. a visual that's the foundation so Anticone is an umbrella of that so Sade English Limited is a company and Anticone Gallery is something that is extension of that company right so as an artist I then recognised that my work was more wearable art rather than 
ready-to-wear fashion. More conceptual. Yeah, it was more conceptual. It was more avant-garde in wearable art rather than ready-to-wear mass-produced T-shirts because everything I made was handmade and mm-hmm. one-of-one pieces. And again, it was fitting the anti-cone terminology. So I recognised that I'm not the only person who's doing that. There's so many other people. Though I created that terminology, there were so many people who represented that term. And that's when I started to create more visual art. And then I started to photograph other creatives in my clothing. And then it became Shardy English, the anti-cone. So that was the concept behind the clothing brand. And then it became the visual and wearable arts brand. And then Anticone Gallery formed in 2020 because during obviously the pandemic happened rather than making clothing I then turned to painting okay during the pandemic yeah because I originally always did painting here and there but my focus was always fashion design but then I kind of fell out of love with it I think to some degree I I just felt the fashion world was very tedious Mm. and though I was in it I was still very much kind of on the outskirts and not wanting to conform to the stereotypical of what then it was still very like women's wear men's wear and then there was uni sex and I just didn't even understand why these terminologies were necessary it's like respectfully if it's a dress it doesn't mean only women can wear this dress Mm -hmm. like that was 2010 it was still very backwards and quite rigid in terms Mm. of how people could express themselves and then in 2020 a lot of things happened like obviously the pandemic happened and there was a big change in my life where my parents actually passed in 2019 and 2020 and they were both teachers and photographers and it was cancer it wasn't COVID related so for that I had I have a very healthy relationship with life and death and rebirth and for me when I lost them because I had known that it was going to happen in 2005 they were diagnosed God at the same time no my mum was diagnosed in 2005 my dad was my like stepdad but I called him dad and he was much older he was in his 90s so he was yeah but very big age difference between him and my mother and he was unwell but then all of a sudden he was diagnosed with cancer quite in a short time frame. And then I think during the pandemic, rather than me wanting to sit behind a sewing machine, it just felt more natural to paint because I found loads of canvases in my mum's room. So then I started to go back to painting again. And then I did an exhibition that was my first solo show in quite a long time. But anyway, I'm going off tangent. In, in short, Anticone Gallery was made because when I did that exhibition, I managed to sell my own painting to Mandrake Hotel and human street and me Uh. doing that made me realize that i'm creating my own show i'm painting my own pieces i'm selling my own work based upon understanding and being able to sell myself so if i can do that for me i should do that for other artists who represent what anticone means Mm -hmm. and then i made anticone gallery so it was literally because i managed to sell my piece to this art collector that i recognized that rather than conforming to simply being an artist or a designer i can be a curator i can be an art dealer i can be a director of my own platform and then that's when I made Anticone Gallery because I had other artists who I also was really passionate about with their work and we had a similar mindset which I would call the Anticone mindset and in having that community of people I then thought let me platform all of these creatives and if I can sell their work in in the process why not so yeah that's how it kind of developed it was all very natural I didn't think I would be here. Well you say that's really natural but I mean obviously death is always a really difficult thing to talk about but I feel like so many people wouldn't have been able to respond to something in such a positive way Mm -hmm. and using something like grief and managing to harness your passion and finding it as a drive like doing it Mm. for them in a sense and being like I'm going to do this because that's what they would want from me as well Mm. they would want me to be happy and thriving and like Mm. dedicating your gallery to your mother as Mm -hmm. well and your mother and your your grandmother yeah so Charlie English my nan was Daphne English so that's what accompanies Charlie English and Anticone is a memory of my mum as well 
massive yeah. effort. I just think it's really this. I don't want it to in any way sound patronising because <laughs> basically, I, I don't think. I think so many people would have been like, oh, my God, I'm just going to wallow. And I think you managed to not only create something out of it and Mm. like in their name, but you've also created a platform for like other people to get access to. And I just think that's such an incredible amount of motivation and perseverance through really difficult time Mm. in your life. I can't imagine. And it's really impressive. Really (laughs) impressive. What you're doing, I think, is really impressive. And Anti-Clone, I think it's basically about supporting unique artists who go against the grain, right? Mm-hmm. And when you say anti-clone, is it also kind of championing minority groups, people who maybe would find it difficult to get into the art world, mm. who maybe don't have traditional fine art education mm. at university, that kind of thing? I think anti-clone does do that, but that was that's not my objective. Like, for me, I I don't want to say that whole, oh, I don't see colour thing, because I hate that terminology. I think it's really problematic. But for me, I am a mixed-race woman. My biological dad was Latino, Italian. My mum is Jamaican born here. I was born in Peckham and I grew up in pre-gentrified Peckham, not Peckham as it is now. So for me, diversity and community is just something that enabled me to thrive and enabled me to learn and develop within. So I just see people as people. I find my social circle, if we're going to like break it down into like individuals, I've got trans friends, I've got black friends, I've got Asian friends, I've got non-binary friends. My social circle was so diverse, but I I don't see it. I, I don't see them as all of these things. So no. though Anticone I'm Happy does that, I do feel that, again, even breaking down the categories of people that I represent, I find a little bit odd because for me, I just see people as people. I don't care what your sexual preference orientation is. If I see your art is something that is necessary and important and it might not be seen as stereotypically what the arts industry wishes to platform, then I will platform it whatever your sexual orientation is or whatever background you're from it doesn't it's not it's not relevant to me but then it might not be relevant to me but to that artist maybe that subject is what is pushing their art so therefore if I can platform their voices and what is relevant to them and do it in an honest transparent way rather than doing it to tick a box then I'm happy to do that you know but I think that's the key thing you just touched on there when you said it doesn't feel relevant or like important to you in that it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a topic it shouldn't be a thing but the whole point and the whole reason I guess of you feeling this need to do anti-clone gallery Mm. is because it is such an issue in the external world and in normative society Mm. where lots of people are discriminated against and excluded like yes not making it a thing for you and like in your gallery I think is actually really important because it's not about that but at the same time it's worth mentioning because it's like it feels it's the only gallery doing what you're doing Mm. and the art world and gallery world is so elitist and yeah, like obviously it's known it's like a cliche isn't it how <laughs> elitist it is upper middle or upper class yeah. white mm-hmm. and mostly male yeah. I think that's changing but I still think it's very small amounts it's, of change yeah, definitely I think though I am the director of Anticone Gallery I also manage as a gallery duty manager another gallery I won't mention names but even, even within that I'm the only black Latino woman within it I just find that when I when I entered I wasn't shocked but I still am in 
internally somewhat shocked or disappointed yeah I think it's disappointing but yeah I feel that rather than enabling that disappointment to like fool you and then just make you feel like oh I don't even want to be in this I'd rather be that person to make that change so that like young versions of me or younger people can recognize that they can see themselves within me having that role yeah as much as it is changing it's so slow like beyond and and above all I think I don't know necessarily if it's change or if it's just simply performative performative change oh I, feel I see like what you mean that's, yeah. do you know what I mean like, 100%. I, I don't believe that things are changing to set a new pathway with the arts world I think it's performative because do you feel like it's a trend yeah 100% I feel like a culture and especially black culture talking from obviously my personal existence black culture is definitely something that is seen as a trend within the arts within fashion within society full stop so I feel that even if I see black representation in companies I'm always so happy to see it and I want that to be a consistent thing but I also do then question I wonder what the management looks like I wonder what HR looks like because it's Who's all in good the boardrooms yeah like it's all good to have people front facing to the public to say look hi look there's someone who's diverse they're, they're trans they're black they're black and brown they're POC like all, all of these terminologies even and now you have oh let's put your pronouns on it's like I, I'm, I'm a bit on the fence with that because I think it's really good and necessary that people respect people's pronouns but then I, we're human like I, for me that's the foundation like but if people feel that being called something and it being public knowledge is necessary for their existence then cool but I do feel that a lot of people are doing so just to appear to the public that they are making progress and change versus yeah. doing it naturally and systemically yeah it's a really tricky one isn't it because obviously I see a lot of cis people cisgendered people are putting their pronouns on everything and I think that in their head they're kind of seeing it as like we should all do it for support Mm -hmm. but at the same time I personally haven't done it myself because I I feel a bit like I want to make sure it is actually helpful before Mm -hmm. I do that but with me I never I don't refer to people via pronouns for me I do not I just say what's your name and then oh I say they I but again I've grown up like my entire community of friendships circles is I always say like 99.9% queer so like I've got best friends who are trans since I was like 10 Mm. so for me this is not within the industry within the media it seems as if this is all new yeah yeah and it's not new new. this is this is like humanity has existed this has always existed you know so for me like when I see oh what's your pronouns I think it's really I respect and I commend people who do that because I think it's important because you can you should never assume anybody I think it's about misgendering people isn't it they can I, I be very offended really by that, that. Yeah. and quite rightly. Yeah, I know people make mistakes and things happen, but I'm just like, one, you shouldn't assume regardless. Like, yeah. for me, just say they or ask what someone's name is. That way, yeah. like, why you have to refer to somebody based upon what you think their gender is, is, is like, why does that even matter? Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. But again, I have some friends who are non-binary and trans who really do find it important that you use the right yeah. pronoun. So and for I that reason, I it. think it's, it's a positive thing, full stop. I think what it is, within my community, we all accept one another, full stop. But unfortunately, I think especially as you get older, that naivety is removed and you recognise that sadly, your community is like 2% out of 100. So it's like... 
as much as we accept one another, regardless of what our gender, our background, our social status are, you know, our classism, like those things are, are not relevant. Like all of my friends, we all love one another regardless. We've just mm. loved one another based upon who we are as and people. And that's not the focal and that's point. Yeah. yeah. But unfortunately, society isn't like that, which is why things like pronouns are really necessary. I think as much as I'm like, oh, why? I, I'm, I'm like that because my friends you, are my... it's not a big it's, deal it's at not, all. It's yeah. not a thing. Yeah. I think that's the thing. The rest of society is like behind. Yeah, so behind. And I think yeah. regardless of even as I get older, like we see change and then we see an undoing. And a lot of the time there's something that's present in the media where they focus on one thing to like cloud the public's mindset or awareness as to what they're then undoing, like trans laws. And they're undoing that behind closed doors that happened during COVID. People not actually having the rights to now protest. Like all of these things were laws that were being unbroken and like complete change so that we don't have rights but instead they were focusing on like like there be no eggs like you know <laughs> like it's so random but like in the news they'll be focusing on things that are so not it's like life-changing it's distractions it? and then us a bit like toddlers like look, look yeah at this, look at you know like oh look at this whilst i'm taking away your toys your rights yeah your rights yeah 100 percent if you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe or press the follow button to get the new episodes. And take a second to like, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find it. You could also share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. So going back to that time during the pandemic mm. and you started returning to like canvases and paint, mm -hmm. you got a bit sick of the fashion industry and like mm. your time at university. Can you tell us a little bit more about was that quite a big thing? I only realised now, though, which is quite interesting at the time, I found it really frustrating because I was fortunate when my mother was a teacher and she was always encouraging me to learn about everything and anything I was intrigued by. So I did dressmaking classes when I could probably use my hands so I could sew I did pattern cutting beforehand so once I was in uni I found that they were teaching me things I had learned when I was a child so I was just finding it extremely slow and frustrating and I had my own way of draping and they were telling me it wasn't the right way and it was like I just found it just so controlling and not progressive for me mentally I just found that I was just being still mm. you mentioned to me earlier that you decided not to complete the BA yeah. You got frustrated. Mm -hmm. That must have been a big decision. But big. was that, I mean, obviously the right decision. Yeah, 100%. It was only ever MAs and BAs that were put in the press day show. But the director saw my work and said, I'm actually going to change it this year. And they wanted my work featured. So it was not a BA you were doing then? It was a, it's a BA, but it's like a two year foundation. Then you do a top up year. Oh, okay. So you were so in it the was, it was, foundation bit first. Yeah. Okay. And I did the two years, but you're only meant to be in the press day show for doing a BA or an MA. Okay. But he saw my work and said, I want your work in it. So though I felt encouraged by that because that had never happened before, my tutor, I won't name names, but she she and I didn't go on because I would always go four steps ahead and she would get frustrated because then everybody else is like watching me rather than watching her. And I wasn't do it to be that, you know, I know everything person. It was just, I'm not going to just slow just down. Speedy. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. just, I know what I'm doing. So I just wanted to have help perfecting my technique of draping rather 
than doing it her method, which her method is right, but there's so many different ways you can drape a garment. It doesn't have to be the... Doesn't have to be her way. Doesn't have to be her way. And so I just kept feeling really frustrated. And when he recognised my work and said, actually, I actually like it, let's put it in the press station. So I was featured and that was my first insight into industry experience because that's where all of the press and I had like my first fashion PR representation then and I was featured in like Vogue and this was all like second year so it was quite that's amazing early and then and I when you say they were conceptual pieces like can you kind they, of describe it was, them it was called us? Daphne it was based it was the name of my na- late nan the pieces were black and texturized very so my pieces weren't women's or men's but I just said it's for everyone so I had two models and I basically stylized them in a way of anticone in my mind and everything was oversized and the stereotypically addressed in them days was like for women right but I didn't have any of that. So you mean in terms of, of when you do a degree in fashion often it's menswear women's wear yeah. and occasionally hopefully now sometimes people will say unisex but mm. still that feels but like that, that terminology was still used yeah I don't th- I don't know if it is now but I, I know think often they say gender neutral now but they do still put in menswear and women's wear I yeah think. and for me I, I wasn't doing that I just made clothes and whoever bodies, wanted to wear it, yeah. wear it like it didn't matter what gender they were I just found that abnormal but I guess that was like my first taste into industry and I recognised that I can talk about my work best I know aesthetically how I want things to look I kind of had already created a brand identity in my mind of how I wanted things to be and we had to do the top up yeah to make it the BA and I remember I I did do a portfolio to go into it and the tutor who looked at my work said that my inspiration might cause offence because it was based upon looking at what society sees as ugly and what fashion industry at the time wasn't platforming so I've got like four disabled cousins and disabilities then weren't even on the runway Mm -hmm. let alone black models it was just predominantly white women and then it was like size zero so now in 2023 obviously it's more diverse and it's more inclusive of everyone but then it just wasn't and I was looking at deformities and disabilities and then creating different structures of garments so rather than it being a you know stereotypical feminine silhouette I was making deformed sort of sculptured sleeves on garments and creating it more 3D and textured and things that sight is still as ugly I was making in my opinion it looked beautiful mm-hmm. and they just thought that it might cause issues and and I was just having a back and forth because it they thought it might cause issues because they thought you were being inspired by disability yeah and they saw that as a problem yeah Wow, that is really problematic. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe were they trying to say, like, because you're able-bodied? I, were you, were I, they, they didn't... ruling it out as... But the thing is, then disabled people are totally excluded, aren't they? Because exactly. there's no representation and they're not there to give themselves representation mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. That's really... So they were like, you can't do that. Yeah. And I was just like, but why? Like That's really shocking. Well, the thing is, when I talk to my friends about it, they're not shocked because so many people had stories like that. It's just no one really shared it. But I was there looking at this guy like, I'm not... like I, I, You were championing it. Yeah. You were like celebrating exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And it was so clear in my portfolio, that's what I was doing. And I don't have to do the whole, I've got disabled families for me to like prove a point either. Like, I don't... It's like when people say, I'm not racist. I've got a black friend. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not here to... 
to list it, but I'm I've just got, looking I've got at friends. I've got gay friends, you know. Yeah. So I was just like really confused by his response. And again, it was a white man telling me that my way of creating is not the right way. And I was just fed up of it. The fashion world then, when I was a student, was predominantly everyone who was lecturing or leading or telling me what was right and wrong was someone who didn't look like me. And I just felt fed up. The director at the time, I think his name was Rob Phillips or John Phillips. Sorry if I've quoted your name wrong. I told him what happened and I showed him my work and they were like, look, if you want to, you want to do this solo, don't you? And I didn't even say it. I was like, yeah, I'm thinking it. And he said to me, like, just so you know, it's going to be, he was always very honest with me. He was like, it's going to be fucking hard. Like, it's not easy. But if you want to do it, go for it. I think you've got the drive, but it's not going to be easy. And by that, he meant go off and have a career in fashion without finishing the degree. Yeah. And I said, I just don't know if I can do this anymore. Like, I'm constantly fighting a battle of being told, okay, so this is how you have to do a portfolio. 10 initial ideas, 12 development designs. But like, I don't create like that. I get fabric and I put it on a mannequin and I make the piece there and then. I don't have an initial idea of the design. I'm inspired by my surroundings. So I could look at a painting and then make a garment from it. I don't sit there drawing 12 different ideas. Like even that is is so programmed on how I was meant to create something. Mm. And I just don't work that way. So I was having to do these hundreds and hundreds of drawings just for them to approve me to tick a box. box. And I just didn't make sense to me. So at Mm. that point, I was like, I'm not going to redo a portfolio to make you feel comfortable so that you can give me a certificate to state that I'm a, I am can be a designer. Like, don't need to do this. So I left. Yeah, that's so... I mean, it's really brave. But how did your family take it at the time? <laughs> My mum was fuming. She's a teacher, so she was like, well, what are you doing? You, especially growing up in Peckham, like, one, working in the arts is not seen as an actual job at the time. Like, seen as too risky. Not even at the time, full stop period. Like, as a black child, they want you within our culture where you, you know you do something academic something that's safe something that will ensure a a well-paid job the arts is just seen as a hobby like it's not taken seriously but fortunately my mum went to Camberwell College of Art so she understood my reasonings Um, what what did she study there? she did graphic she did like um, she worked on ID so she did like an an issue in the 80s yeah yeah, ID magazine so she had experience the arts world and she she thrived in it she did well but then she had me at 25 and thought "Mm, maybe I need to get a job that's a little bit more well paid and then she ended up becoming a teacher in IT so she still did creative things and she taught me how to build Antucone in terms of the website she taught me how to make computers even so all of the web design and stuff I learned from my mum so the graphics all of that got from my mum she understood my reasonings for wanting to work within the arts because in all honesty she's the one who introduced me to it so with that in mind when I told her that I was going to art school she was like as long as you get your you know the right A-levels you pass the GCSEs like do what you want but I would prefer you to be a teacher but she didn't and that's what she wanted for you to be a teacher she didn't want me to be a teacher but she was worried about the financial stability I guess when you're coming from second generation Jamaican background though she was born here like she saw she was one of ten so she saw my my grandparents really have to like struggle to make ends meet they were always working so financially they were okay but for my mum she just wanted me to have a stable life 
life and working in the arts isn't seen as so stable. It's hard. Yeah, it's, not, it's not stable. It's not easy. <laughs> Even you can see why parents put that pressure on. Hundred like, percent. I get it. I think sometimes it's obviously always coming from a good place. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes it can be quite smothering. For yeah, and but, some some people don't. They don't end up going into it like yeah. you did, which I think is good. But that's obviously. the thing. I was lucky where my mum still encouraged it as long mm. as I got a degree out of it. So when I told her I was not going to do the BA, she was just like, "Fuck's sake!" Like <laughs> I don't. I can't. The thing is, I'm I'm not someone who can be controlled. I will respect my elders and I respected my mum. And I still do live, even though she's not physically here, I know what things she would prefer me to do. And I still take on board her wishes were for me. But I just couldn't be controlled that way anymore. It was just frustrating. And I'm paying you to control me at uni. As much as you might not see the money come out of your account, you're paying these people to tell you how to exist as a creative. And mm. for me, when I think of the arts, I think of expression and freedom and being able to express yourself transparently without judgment. But the moment I went to LCF, I recognised that's not what the arts industry is at all. It is still about conforming. It's still about being controlled. It's just, you look at galleries and you think, oh, this beautiful painting. You see all of these beautiful things. But even then, like artists have been taught how to paint, which paintbrush to use. You don't know that if you're just looking at something. You just yeah. think it's a beautiful thing. So the moment I went into LCF and then I told my mum I wasn't doing the degree, she wasn't happy about it. But she just said as long as you get a job and you pay for your own way then fine I don't think anyone I don't think any parent would be happy if their child decides to drop out of uni yeah <laughs> just because it's so expensive as well but looking back now when you see that experience and how much it taught you do you feel mm. like do you look back and think that was actually a really good thing that was a good experience because it taught me like what I want and what I don't want in life I feel that in life everything is a lesson right so I don't regret going to uni if I hadn't have gone I wouldn't have made Anticone, probably. Maybe I would have in some way, but having felt the pressure to conform to their way of being a creative is what made me make Anticone. Mm. So I appreciate it for all of the lessons learned, for sure. I don't regret it, and I'm, I am glad that it went, but I also do feel like I would have preferred if I didn't have to pay and that it maybe was one year rather than two years, because I do feel like a year in, I recognised that I felt like I was wasting time there. But I'm grateful for everything, because at the end of the day, it's made me who I am, mm -hmm. like recognise it made me create the company in terms of almost rebelling to made you see the problem that you want yeah. to like push against yeah. yeah so I'm grateful for that I just yeah it was an expensive expensive, an expensive lesson. lesson to learn yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, do you still sew and make clothes or wearable art I haven't for a while what's quite interesting is in 2020 February I went to Marrakesh to get some fabric to make a new collection oh my God, just before yeah. everything got shut down for me it was 2020 was weird because my mum passed February 2020 and I didn't know about the pandemic because I was in hospital every single day with her until she passed. So all of my friends and family and I don't have a TV. My mum, I wasn't a kid who was raised with television. She didn't have it in my house. So like, though I obviously would read the news, I, I was so focused on my mum mm -hmm. that I didn't even know that there was something called COVID happening. It was only when she passed um, when I came out of hospital my friends were like, so I know this is a bit crap what's happened but 
there's also um, something, <laughs> something else, else happening. is happening. Yeah. And it was just mad because my mum's funeral was even the first day of lockdown. It must have felt so, I mean, it was surreal anyway, but dealing with grief and the death of your mum mm. at the same time, you probably, I bet you were sort of slightly desensitised from the pandemic. If I'm honest, I was not slightly, I was 100%, 100%. desensitised. Like, I empathise with anyone who lost people during that time, of course. But for me, I had no emotional, true awareness of what was happening because I was just so focused on surviving. Getting through the day. Yeah, getting through the day, basically. So for me, it was like losing my dad, then having to recognise I was then going to lose my mum and then coming out of hospital and then the whole world's on lockdown. I was just like, what the fuck is going on? It was, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, yeah, Sorry. yeah. Swear away. <laughs> I, it was just like, I was so... I, I remember when my friend told me we were in the car going home and I burst out laughing. And my friends were just worried because they were like, she hasn't... What's going on? Like, I'm laughing. Where I'm were not... you living at that point as well? Um, Greenwich, Greenwich. Okay, um, but were you living like with people so you could... Oh, no, it was just my mum and I. I lived with my mum. I moved out like twice in my life and I moved back in because I just didn't like living with other people. <laughs> I do like paying rent. It's but, like... Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. I didn't like paying rent. <laughs> um, that's even more difficult, isn't it? Because you'd gone from living with your mum yeah. to then your mum passing away to yeah. then going into lockdown and living without your mum yeah and then living alone like, yeah but the thing is time. two of my best mates bless them they were in the bloody room when she went sorry guys um but they were they... in the room when she died yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah. that is true friendship isn't it well i i was in the room every single day with her so i knew i won't go too in depth because i don't know who's listening in case they're experiencing any potential loss but i knew what the processes were of somebody dying because i knew someone's been t- diagnosed with terminal health condition and they tell I, I asked for the details like very graphic details as to the processes of when they start to come to their end so I knew that morning that it was likely she was going to go because her breathing had changed so I wanted my friends to be out of the room that day I remember it was getting it was like she passed five past nine so I was like mm, seven I want everyone to leave she's like her breathing's getting lower and lower and then my friends were in the room because they were chilling with me but I I, I wanted to be alone I didn't want people to be there but I was really fortunate where they handled it okay bless them and then they kind of all moved in with me so I didn't actually live oh, alone that's <laughs> like they stayed with me for a while but I'm a single child though I love my sister hi um she found 2020 was mad like I met my sister hang for on the first so you're time. not an only child no I am an only child from my mom and biological dad but right. my biological dad has 10 kids. Oh, uh, okay. So you've got loads of half siblings. Yeah, but I don't know any of them apart from one. And she found me four months after my mum passed away. So 2020 oh. was just wild, full oh stop. Oh my God. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, That's amazing. But luckily, like, she's incredible. And it was really beautiful for her to have found me. And we've got so many mutual friends. It's unreal. No which is even more bizarre. Like, one of my best friends knows her. That and is it's, so like, weird. She's a dancer. Like, well, that feels a bit like... You know, obviously not to get woo-woo, but it feels a bit like fate, doesn't it, in a sense? No, definitely. She came into your life at yeah. a point when you needed family. Yeah, no. It was it was, it was, was surreal, but um, it, it was a really beautiful experience, especially to have her. And then two cousins found me. It was mad. I was, I was very cautious, though, of everything. Mm-hmm. Because I, again, being a single child, living with my mum, and then my life kind of changing overnight. Like, though I, you know, prepared for it, you can never really prepare for that. 
No. Yeah, I just had had to survive. There was no choice. And that's when you started painting. Yeah, because, oh yeah, sorry. So I had gone to Marrakesh to get fabric to make a new collection, clothing. But then when I arrived back two weeks later, my mum passed away. And at that point, whenever I sew, I have to want to sew. Like as much as I love fashion design and creating pieces, if I'm honest, if I'm not in the right headspace, I can't sew. Otherwise, the fabric, that's worth a lot of money. Like I take, I invest a lot into sourcing fabric. So the fabric is not cheap at all. So I can't go on a sewing machine if I'm not in the right mindset. So when my mum passed, till now, all of that fabric for that collection is in a box. I just didn't touch it. But because I then decorated the whole house, changed everything, because my mum's aesthetic was like fucking awful. <laughs> um, and so I needed like a project. So, sorry to your mum. Sorry, mum, love you. <laughs> um, but yeah, her, her aesthetic was just not mine. I'm very monochrome. My whole house looks like it's just black and white and it's just clean. I need like a blank canvas in order to like exist and work in. If it's too busy, I just can't really create. It irritates me. So just something clean enables me to think in a more calm manner. I was removing things, giving things to charity, cancer research, whatnot. I found the canvases and then I felt obviously a lot of emotion that I was probably internalizing. And then one day I just decided to use one of her canvases because she actually put a stick note on it and she said, paint. Sade and then just like a kiss and I was like what the fuck she's so creepy <laughs> so then I so thought was she, was okay. she planning to use that canvas to paint a picture of you then no no that stick note was telling me to paint so I have a picture oh. that she made of me yeah already but so that she, was, a, it was a blank canvas then it was a blank canvas okay. she just put paint Sade X as in I should paint oh. so I felt like she knew that I would need something that's really at least I like sweet. to think that's the case I that's don't know. really sweet but basically of those canvases I painted all of the emotion I was feeling and that's why with that exhibition it was called the immortal diaspora because I felt like my ancestors and my mum live on through me so that was the title of the exhibition and all of those paintings and then that painting I sold to Mandrake and then that's how Antikone Gallery came about mm. but I, I am going to make a collection again everyone keeps asking but so I'm, that's kind of been you mean you're going to make a collection fashion collection clothing right, collection right okay yeah. you do want to yeah I was about to say hasn't that been sort of shelved a bit because you've gone on to painting and mm. to Antikone Gallery so yeah, your focus yeah. is being swamped by that yeah, I'm, I'm just a different person now. And clothing and expression is still something that I embody. For me, my paintings are all abstract expressionism. It's not, you know, still life. I just paint how I feel. I don't paint every single day. I'm not one of those artists who sits in my studio and puts on some jazz and like starts painting. I'm not that person. It's if I feel something and I need to release it healthily in a healthy way, I'll do put it on a canvas or go to the gym. <laughs> um, but painting is what came naturally to me when I lost my parents because I was I just needed to let everything out quickly Mm-hmm. And when you're making clothing, you know, you've still got rules. You've got to like five centimetre seam allowance, all of these things. Like you have to be rigid in creating within the final. Within the creativity. With, yeah, within it. Whereas with a painting, I can do what I want. Like there are no rules. So since 2020 till now, I've only been focused on painting and Antikone Gallery because overnight Antikone Gallery became this thing that I'm so passionate about that I put all of my focus into it. But in the same breath, I do feel that when I'm now wearing clothing or looking at fashion I'm so bored I've been fortunate where there's a lot of like really great designers that I will invest into like Hood Bayer or Helia or Alix Studio there are still cool brands that I really like but I'm still finding it a little bit limiting and a little bit boring the clothing that I'm then purchasing because I'm so used to wearing my own stuff that I think I've been so focused on just painting that expressing myself through clothing I'm more minimal now like back then I was more like almost 
making a point, like wearing things that were extremely oversized or more wearable art because I felt that fashion was boring and tedious. Therefore, I wanted to be the opposite of that. But I feel like as I'm getting older, like I'm not going to wear, you know, a four meter leatherette train jacket that I made. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I've got friends who do and they look amazing doing it, but it's just not practical for me now. So yeah, I, that's it, the thing with fashion. I would love to just go all out all the time. Yeah. But I find more and more that I'm like, I've got loads of shit to do. I need to have comfy shoes on. <laughs> it's really lame, but yeah. it's like there's so much that I don't wear in my wardrobe. I've got mm. so many lovely clothes that mm. I've like, my clothes are like my treasures. Yeah. Like, they're the things that for me are the most valuable, even though mm. I don't spend tons of money on, yeah. on like a piece. Yeah. But for me, that's what I love to I love dressing up mm-hmm. but so many of my clothes now I don't really wear because I'm like well the commute's gonna take an hour <laughs> I don't want to sweat into that dress this and have sweat patches mean. like but for real that's the reality I don't want, I find... I've got these boots that I absolutely love that I spent quite a bit of money on yeah. and I barely ever wear because yeah. they're so uncomfortable I'm like this is just so lame I'm so old like no but I hear you but that's I think this is oh, I feel like I've become that person I, I completely relate though when I'm going out with my friends I will still express myself more so in terms of wearing more avant-garde pieces like my style versus 10 well now it's about 13 years ago versus now has changed like I still have elements of avant-garde but then I also explore like the street wear style element which is probably like from my foundations and Packham but then I'm always usually in like a suit or tailoring so I love what the fashion would see as masculine silhouettes like androgynous androgynous like that's always been my look tailored like tailored blazers and shoulder pads yeah 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 it's like a cross between that and streetwear it's like a mixture so the reason why I want to make a clothing collection again is because I'm really starting to get frustrated by what's out everything is extremely overpriced and I know how things are made I would invest in like leather goods so I buy bags certain designers when it comes to leather goods like especially like Bottega Veneta their main bags that I'll buy because I know how it's made I know that that's not something I can replicate so I will invest into that versus clothing I know how to make clothing so I find it a little bit harder to purchase stuff where you're like, I could make this. I can make it. And I feel like that's starting to come in my mind more and more. And that's why I've now got the itch to make a collection mm-hmm. because I don't want to buy the shit that I'm seeing on the rails. So I will make a collection. This I'm actually going back to Marrakesh this month. So it's the first time I've gone back. It'll be a three anniversary since my mum's passed. And it's the first time I'm going back since she's passed. Mm. And I'm actually going to get fabrics to make the collection. I want it to be pieces that I can wear daily because the pieces I was making previously that went under Shardy English Limited, those aren't pieces that me as a 31-year-old woman can wear every single day. Like, I'm very realistic. I love outerwear, so I will have outerwear pieces that are more, let's say, avant-garde, not necessarily day-to-day pieces. But because it's outerwear, you mm. can take it off very easily. You can pull it on. But I'm talking, like, the underlayers. I want it to be things that are more wearable for me. More so, functional, yeah. More functional, yeah. Which is funny Well, that's really exciting. Please keep us up I to date with when you're going to do, do yeah, your yeah. collection. Where do you think you'll show it? I don't care for Fashion Week, so I wouldn't do it in the that I would probably do something very independent. I would create it. I'll do it in more of like an exhibiting way. I, I'm connected to Lab Store London, which is a lifestyle avant-garde boutique on Newman Street. And I've got Anticone art pieces there currently. So if people see things online, the Anticone Gallery website, you can actually purchase some of the sculptures from there. And they have 
brands that are more similar in terms of maybe ethos and stylized like Rick Owens, Heide Ackerman. So I would probably have the clothing stock there. I haven't told Ray that, but <laughs> that's what I'll be doing. Now they know. <laughs> I would probably have it in a store like that. So it would be amongst more like-minded designers in that sense. Yeah. Because yeah. you're focused at the moment on building anti-clone. Yeah. So are you at the moment kind of finding new artists to show their work through anti-clone? And Fortunately, I'm if I come across an artist, then I will approach them. But fortunately, everything has been quite natural. People are sending me their submissions. I am also on the lookout. So if I see something I like, I'm not shy to ask. But for me, it's not about quantity. It's about quality. And I feel like I get a lot of submissions and art, of course, is art regardless. But I have a very sort of signature to Anticone visually and like the ethos behind it. Therefore, it has to fit. It has to fit. And yeah. also Anticone is a memory of my mum. So I'm not going to jump on something just because it's popular. No, yeah, it, it has needs to be, the right be true to what Anticone means. Yeah. So I am looking for artists. I want I want people to submit their work to me. If they feel that their work doesn't conform to the old ways of the arts world, then definitely send it over. So you often will have like events, anti-clone events, where mm-hmm. you'll showcase artwork mm-hmm. and artists' work. And you've had one in Stoke Newington at, what was that place called? Oh, Newington Green. Newington Green. Yeah, a Newington Green Meeting House. Meeting yeah. House, that's it. Which is like an old church. Mm-hmm. So there was really iconic work there mm-hmm. in a beautiful building. Mm-hmm. That was wild. That was like the first like building takeover I've had. Was it? Yeah. It was really cool. Thank you. It was really cool. I loved the sculptures. They Thank were my favourite part. And the performance. Yeah. Of course. That was <laughs> Epic, absolutely epic. Mm. But yeah, in terms of like what's coming up for Anticlone, what do you see for like the future of Anticlone? And do you want to have a permanent space for the gallery? I've had a lot of people have been asking me that. I think in terms of permanent, I'm, I'm thinking about that. For me, Anticlone Gallery has always been something that would exist online. But I want there to be physical exhibitions that can be all over the world. I do eventually want there to be a permanent space, but I want there to be multiple permanent spaces. I don't believe that London is the only place place for Anticone. I want to actually take it more worldwide. And in countries where I'm from, like places like Jamaica, places like countries in Africa, Nigeria would be great. Berlin. I just, I want to, I like that it's an online platform that can be nomad in spirit and also be physically in all different areas so that it's accessible to all. I think a permanent space in London makes sense because I'm from here. This is my hometown and I'm, I'm proud to be from London. But I want Anticone to be accessible because I do feel like, as I said, the arts industry isn't so inclusive. It's quite elite. And I want all different communities to be able to access it. But having access to buildings like Newington Green Meeting House that is in somewhere that it's still gentrified but the community is still more diverse and being able to bring it there rather than having a Mayfair Anticone gallery space don't get me wrong if I I am looking at the moment to get funding because everything I do with Anticone is self-funded I don't think many people know that I think people assume that because it's been in places like Soho House or Soho Square or Newington Green that I've got this you know someone funding it all but it's all personally funded by myself so I am looking for funding this year so that I can have more pop-ups that I'm not having to fund myself mm-hmm. luckily I've had national lottery funding with Newington Green but I need to try to have more funds to enable it to be present in different areas a permanent space would be great but it's not my sole focus right now the focus is to get funding so that I can do more physical pop-ups worldwide mm-hmm. that's my goal what was the other question so oh what's the plan oh yeah 
Um, well, that sounds like the plan. That sounds that's, incredible. That's maybe yeah. the plan. I'm working to make it on, like international. Yeah, and to also develop it further because because it is online, it enables me to have like an archive of where everything is. So having more moving image like videos, I've got something called Anticonian Conversation, which I do with every pop up where I basically moderate a panel and I invite now guest curators or creatives to lead panels, and then that will be filmed. And I'm actually now going to take the sound so that I can have anti podcasts, which I'm now making which is the anti-podcast and then I will have talks that will be all on the platform so it's about diversifying the website Mm -hmm. so that it's not just go to the shop to buy art it also has interviews and films and podcasts and just to elevate it further and what made you want to set up the podcast because we were talking about that yeah what inspired us to do it 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 was it was because I'm always I'm so blessed to have such an incredible like group of friends around me but I hate that terminology cliquey but we can be a bit like to ourselves and have these really important discussions that I just feel need to be accessible to more people. So the first panel that I did for Anticone Takeover, like a pop-up, was at White City So House. We didn't record that one, which was a shame. But the most recent ones that I've done, so the second and the third, at the Anticone Takeover 2 at Newington Green, they are recorded. So those films will be on the website. It will be on Anticone Gallery. Yeah. And I've also started the first episode of the podcast the anti-podcast of someone who was on that panel, Shingi Rice, who's a photographer. The main reason behind it was whenever I would do paneled conversations, I recognised that only the people in that room get to have access to all of this information. Mm-hmm. And You don't want it to be exclusive. I don't want it to be exclusive at any point, which is why all of my exhibitions are always free, which is why any workshops that I do are always free. Like For me, I always think about the Sade kid version of myself growing up in Peckham, where I was fortunate enough to have my mother who would take me to all of these art galleries so I never once felt that these spaces weren't for me because it was just natural for me to explore these spaces but I do feel like once you start to make things you know £10, £20 and then excluding a whole community who might not have that disposable income and it's I just It's tricky of course because you want to be inclusive but at the same time it must be really difficult to fund because it is. It's, it if, is you, really if you're committing hard. to it being free yeah. which is an amazing thing to commit to mm. then it's really tricky because it means you've got a real issue with funding often that's why There is that's why a lot of projects end up coming to an end because Mm. you can't do it forever I'm not gonna lie even I've had that question like how long can I do this for and everyone's like what I'm like because like I'm very fortunate where I have disposable income that I can put it into Anticone but if I'm not making consistent sales from art if I'm not doing things like this and I I it's just constant cash flow issue but I'm fortunate where at the moment I can continue to do it and I don't intend for it to ever end which is why I'm now looking for additional funding but in order for Anticone to continue elevating the way it is it just needs to be across all platforms and I think it can always be free because I am always going to have the option to donate so hopefully with good good human deeds like there will be donations that will come through that can help fund it. And those that can afford it will yeah. yeah. I feel like it shouldn't be by force I think if you can you know afford to donate something do if you can't it's important that it's accessible for everyone. Mm. I don't really want that to ever change unless it's in a certain space like for instance when I did the Soho house workshop I'm not it's not free what did yeah of course <laughs> not that I got money for that because so her house actually charged the members which was interesting charged the members to so be, you, do the workshop so they paid you they paid you I was given a budget yeah yeah but I'm a member as well but I was still paid so thank you <laughs> I'm not coming for you 
<laughs> but what does that workshop involve? What do you mean by, by workshops? What kind of things? Um, it was a drawing workshop. So I had one of the artists come down and basically show a few of the members how they do their drawing techniques. That was Conrad Armstrong. Okay, that's really cool. So for instance, things like that, it, it depends where I am. Like I am now having to obviously look at it for longevity. Like I'm not doing this yeah. for a hobby, right? So when I do more workshops going forward, for instance, if I'm doing it in a members club or if I'm doing it in a space where there's disposable income running through the ground, I'm not going to make it free because these spaces are catered towards 100%. the target market who can afford to. Versus if I'm going to do a community project in Brixton, not the gentrified part, I'm talking about that communities are completely forgotten. I would not make that workshop paid. I would make it free because I know who the market is in that space and yeah. community is important to me because I come from that. And I guess like being really savvy about doing things in places where you can make money and mm-hmm. can charge people mm-hmm. and using that money to continue doing yeah. stuff for free, which is what you're really passionate about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's amazing. I'm so excited for your podcast and also I'm really excited for your new fashion collection. Yeah, I don't, don't quote me on it there. <laughs> Watch this space. I don't know when it's going to come out. I want to see your... I kept thinking actually as well, you know, you said you've got it that fabric in a yeah. box and mm-hmm. you haven't opened it. Mm. And there's a part of me that wonders like maybe you're not opening that box because it will remind you of a time mm. when you went to Marrakesh before your mum mm. passed, mm. before the pandemic, before a whole lot of stuff hit mm-hmm. the fan for you. Mm-hmm. So maybe that is kind of something like a an artifact from the past that you yeah. kind of don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. And part of me is like, open the box, get yeah. out the fabric. I think I think you're probably right, 100%. Because it's hard, like, certain things will just remind you and take you right back. Yeah. Maybe that's also stopping you from wanting to sew. Could be. That box is being a blocker. Mm. Wow, I've just got some free therapy there. <laughs> it, you know where to sense. come. You know where to come. Um, but thank you so much for coming on Bodies in the Post. It's thank been really great to talk to you. Me. And I love what you're doing with Anticlone. It's so exciting. Thank and you. yeah, I can't wait to see more of what you do. Thanks a lot. Thanks thank for having you. me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bodies in the Post with Sade English. If you enjoyed listening, please follow the show for more episodes. Thank you.